let me know if I've got all of this right. You beat people up? Yes. Put them in the hospital? Yes. Shot, stabbed people? Yes. Helped kidnap people? Yes. And you were an accessory to murders? Correct. That's a, that's quite a resume. It's the business we were in. The business they were in was organized crime. And what set Whitey Bulger's organization apart was his penchant for violence. Weeks says it was all part of the folklore of this Irish working class neighborhood known as Southie. He, he stabbed people, he beat people with bats, he shot people, strangled people, run them over cars. You, you said also that he liked killing. Yeah. Well, explain that to me. After he would kill somebody, he it was like a stress relief. You know, he'd be uh, nice and calm for a couple of weeks afterwards. Like he just got rid of all his stress. By killing? Yes. Well, that's a bizarre way to get rid of stress. History of Violence listeners, comrades, scavengers, podcasts where we go entirely too deep in histories, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, assassinations, affairs, terrors, and trials. And uh, we're about to do a little project we've been talking about for a while, because in case you haven't forgotten, this is a Boston podcast. Yes, it is. Greatest city in the world. Mm. Except all the parts that make it really bad. Except those. Uh, Uh, I'm actually from the area, but I'm not going to try to do the accent. I used to actually be kind of okay at imitating it. I grew up around at least some people who spoke it by somehow lost the ability probably around grad school uh sorry boston yeah i mean the the, the amount of accent has gotten really compressed so it really sure. just comes out in words i feel like yeah so a lot of times when you see like uh there will be like tiktoks or instagrammers who mm-hmm. like are doing a boston accent like really exaggerated it's usually mm-hmm. usually a little bit fake like it comes up with like right. like yeah yeah like, take no it doesn't it doesn't it's just you know, you, you either have it or you don't, I think, at yeah. this point. It's not uh, not worth. Yeah. And real, real APOC heads know I'm actually from Texas. So. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is, a, this is a more literary episode, right, Peter? And it it's, is. Uh, it's one close to home. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking about some, some interesting books about some very uh, pasty white rat bastard gangsters. That's right. But we're not going to be talking about the big boy. Not directly. Uh, yeah. So the the, the king of, of normcore Boston gangsterism, mm-hmm. James Whitey Bulger, the CIA test subject, mm-hmm. 50 doses of LSD in Atlanta prison. Several award-winning films about him. Two dozen bodies on him. At least. Yeah, we're not going to be talking about him. Uh, he's kind of just in the background as a shadow mm. because he didn't, he obviously, he didn't write a book of like Whitey Bulger in his own words. No. He really should have. It been he there. wrote some, he, apparently he wrote some pretty extensive letters. He was his, a very literary guy. His, he was to his brother uh, when he fled, but in Howie Carr, who's, we'll talk about him, yeah. claims to have had some kind of access to them, but did not see fit to reproduce them fully. Um, but we're we're talking about Boston gangsters today. Yes, the the late twentieth century, late twentieth, the Halcyon years. 
years at the uh, at the the full fruition of the American Empire, what we still have in Island of Madness mm. within the city. But these are not Bolger. These are like the second string guys, yes. right? These are the guys who are just like, did you know I was there when we Whitey did the thing? Yeah. But there's a there's a real interest in that because well, and we've been talking back and forth about this, Peter, for a while. There was this like whole uh, whole period in the 2000s. I, in fact, I'm just going to let you take it away. Yeah. What I want you to do, reader, especially if you're from our part, my part of the world, is to cast your mind back, if you can, if you were there for it, to 2006, that year of years. 2006, 2007, cast your mind back to shopping for presents for your dad, cast your mind back to Borders, the the chain bookstore that I thought was going to be a part of life just going forward. And if you went to that time or a number of years thereafter, for all I know still at Barnes and Noble or Border, or not Borders, no more Borders, Barnes and the few remaining. There are no more Borders, Peter. That's right. the, The globalists did them in. In any event, if you cast your mind back to that time and you remember the bookstore selections, there would be a, I should know the word for this because I did used to work at a bookstore, admittedly, a long time ago, a stand, a display. Oh, like an like an end cap. Yes, an end cap, an end cap. There would inevitably be an end cap, at least in the Northeast of the U.S., and you could let us know, readers, whether uh, you saw them in your part of America or theoretically even abroad, that were about... Boston Irish crime because you had this was this was a a plum time for people to come forward and write books about either their experiences or in some cases they were uh, written by journalists about the crime scene in Boston in that late 20th century period that Isaac alludes to so pretty importantly pre 9-11 and before Whitey Bulger, for the most part, before Whitey Bulger absconded from Boston in 1994, went on the lamb. And you would see interesting collections there. You would see a few different, You not all of the books had a theme. They shared a location usually, though sometimes you would get books that were broader, not so strictly focused on Boston. So for instance, uh, T.J. English's uh, lovely title, uh, Paddy Whacked, A History oh, of uh, Irish Organized Crime I, in America. I think it got made into a TV series. Of course it did. It was like a, like a History Channel yeah, series. Yeah, why, why ever not? Series. And you would also get books that weren't directly about crime. Okay. So, for instance, Michael Patrick McDonald's All Saints, which was something of a publishing phenomenon. Is By the way, side note, I... I'm just going to say this now. I have no idea of TJ English's ethnic background. And I don't really like give a shit about this whole like, like you can't use white ethnics yeah, yeah, and stuff like that. But you know what? If your last name it's is English, <laughs> you can't say that word. Right, right. The thing is, I'm pretty sure he is Irish. And there are Irish with the last name English. Because, I, I, you know, the, this is probably quasi-mythological. Okay, if you're an Irish person with the name English, you need to change your last name to X. Right? Well, that's the thing, because the interaction between Ireland and England goes back so long. Yes. You have what were called the Old English families in Ireland who were the descendants of, like, Normans who came over in, like, the 1200s and basically assimilated. They started speaking Gaelic. And they were all Catholic to begin with. And then when the Scots-Irish and whoever started coming over in the 1500s, when Elizabeth started consolidating her hold over the island, 
a lot of those old English families were front and center in the Irish Rebellion. Yeah. Uh, so that's a whole thing. Because, you know, uh, Irish... I mean, it's a, it's a great name for a deep cover... Right? Fenian <laughs> operative. Yeah, right? No, no, never no. Trust me. My last name's English. My family's been English here for so many years. Yeah, we love the Queen. Um, but no, I like... Sorry, back, back to... Uh, back sorry, to by, uh, sorry. By a late-coming uh, would-be yuppie gangsters. Right, right. Well, Michael Patrick McDonald's All Souls, that came out in 97. I think there was always an interaction between... By this point, by the time you had chain bookstores like Borders... There was always an interaction between other parts of the media and the books that they tried to sell. And this was also the period when Goodwill Hunting came yeah. out. When when was that? 96, 95? Around there. Yeah. Good. It was it was that that part of the 90s where people started being like, actually, I need to be happy now. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. After post-Cobain suicide. Yeah. Um, so Goodwill Hunting comes out and Boondock Saints comes out and becomes this massive sleeper hit yeah. around 99. Nobody expected it. Uh, you know, uh, I was a big fan of that movie. I'm not particularly proud or really ashamed to say. I was 13 and an older boy showed it to me. I was like, hell. And I never, key, I had never seen a Quentin Tarantino or a John Woo movie by that point. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think that, you know, at that time, loving Boondock Saints is like a part of the dialectical right. evolution. Absolutely. Thank you. To, to you know, being a, a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016 and 2020, and then, you know, having a, a, a little listen to podcast. That's you know? right. One can only hope, at least. We are many. Yes. Okay. Uh, so the point is, reader, is that, is that Irishness, and particularly a gritty, working class, authentic Irishness that was based, at least in the mythology, in Boston in particular, and in most exactly in the neighborhood of South Boston or Southie, as it is affectionately known, yeah. became this phenomenon because flanked by both literally in some cases and figuratively cultural phenomena like Goodwill Hunting, Boondock Saints, All Souls, works of mag hugely different quality, by yeah, the way. We're, of course, leaving out the Rose McGowan, uh, Donnie Wahlberg, or would-be hit, Southie Sou yeah. from 1999. With, uh, with uh, Will Arnett in a rare dramatic role as as the villain. Good boy, Dad. Dad, a good boy's not enough. Southie. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, it, it became the point is it became this flanked by all these works. You have these works of journalism and the, what we're going to focus on here, memoirs of this neighborhood by, by criminals, because even Michael Patrick McDonald. And here it's worth noting that McDonald is someone who his he and his family suffered immensely from the criminal activity in South Boston, Boston more broadly at that time. And I always figured, because naturally, putting myself in here for, for a minute, I was a teenager when this stuff was happening, when the romanticization of Southie really hit, and it hit very hard in the suburbs of Boston, which is where I grew up, about midway between Boston and Providence. And I was around people who really bought into it. I would go into the homes of family friends or, or of friends of mine. And the only books there often would be books from these end caps. So you would have All Souls, 
next to Black Mass, the book about the first one of the first major journalistic accounts of Whitey Bulger, yes. next to some of these crime memoirs, next to The Rascal King, which is a biography of James Curley, who wasn't actually involved with any of this, but was a crooked Boston mayor, you know, decades before. That's actually a pretty good book, too. And I, being the little rebel that I was, did not care for this romanticization. It struck me as sentimental, fake, affected. I didn't like it. I just didn't like it. And that actually led me to not read some of these books. I read Black Mass when I was doing research on the historiography of organized crime. I eventually, for this project, I read All Souls, and it's actually very good. It's a, it's a very good and very unsentimental memoir about how the lifestyle, I guess you could say, the, this concatenation of factors involving poverty, generational poverty, uh, disruption of education by things like the busing riots, and we'll talk some about busing as we go on, and the ownership of that neighborhood by Whitey Bulger with the connivance of the FBI, how he ran it like a fiefdom and wasted the lives of its young people. And McDonald, even as he loves his neighborhood that he grew up in, is very unsentimental about that. So I'm not really sure what people got out of. It, it's it's really funny because, uh, you know, one, one could tell that, that, like, the closer you got to Boston, that, like, these types of uh, kind of gangster accounts, I'm no longer a gangster, but this this is my sentimental, like, hagiography mm -hmm. of being a gangster in Southie. By, so my grandfather actually, like, grew up in South Boston, mm -hmm. or at least it was his childhood in South Boston. Much of his growing up was in in Gloucester after he was uh, given a new name and moved. Um, that's a whole other story. Yeah, he, he thought his, his name was Malaki, and then his uh, his birth father, like, snatched him up one day and was like, actually, your name's Stan. Huh. <laughs> what a stay with Malaki. Malaki's a right. great name. But putting that aside for a moment, he never cared for this shit. Yeah. At all. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, granted, the thing is, is that he... His perspective is interesting because when he grew up in, in South Boston, uh, it was very much deeply impoverished, mostly Irish mm -hmm. neighborhood. Like that, that way, those waves in the 19th century had already occurred, but it wasn't this kind of constructed island apart from itself mm -hmm. that it would be largely because that that turns out to be kind of an, an artificial thing yes. that's not made afterwards. It really right. was like that, like, yes. uh, but, you know, made by a lot of like government policy right? and like almost like Lebanon style ethno-nationalist, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. like, uh, like neighborhood nationalism, like, uh, like uh, what's the word? Um, like cutting of the pie mm. uh, that, that turned out to, you know, not really benefit the most of the majority of the residents no. at all it's funny that i was reading pretty recently that you know leading up to the boston busing riots in south boston that the um segregated and, and clearly like very intentionally deprived schools in places like roxbury dorchester the more predominantly african-american neighborhoods in boston they had a lower funding per student amount but the 
head of the Boston NAACP at the time was pointing out, South, Southeast schools are way more dilapidated oh, than yeah. ours. Like, this money is not going to your students. It went to and, the football team, I'm pretty it sure. Went to, it went to the football team, and I mean, it went to, to have these kind of like handout sinecure yes. jobs yes. among people who knew and were connected. Yeah. And I, I'd like to get in at some point into like how Southie was made into Southie. Right. But so let's get into that after we cap off the legend of Southie, because that's yeah. what these end caps were about. And that's why I want to investigate when we're talking about the wordy goons of Boston. Mm -hmm. The legend of Southie is that it is this gritty, white, urban, working class authenticity. It's Irish, though you did typically have at least a few uh, Italians, Lithuanians, Poles knocking around, but predominantly Irish. Everyone knew each other is, is part of it. The kids could run around freely and getting into shenanigans. And this myth of Whitey, who at first was praised for being the guy who, quote unquote, kept the drugs mm -hmm. and, you know, implicitly the Black people out of South Boston, his brother, Billy, the eventual president of the Massachusetts State Senate. They, they kept the drugs out part still gets repeated oh, to yeah. this day. Well, there's By a, people who were literally drug yeah, addicts drugs. in that neighborhood yeah. at the time. There was, there was a little smidge of truth to it that we'll get into. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we're talking about the legend of Whitey and what, what he actually did, what he actually accomplished. So, and then later the guy who rooked the FBI, Though most, to their credit, most of the writers, even writer, you know, criminal memoirs who I'm going to talk about, who you'll see I don't think much of, all admitted that, yes, Whitey was a rat. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's a major part of the Southie myth, that South, it was Southie against the world, even the other parts of Boston, even the other Irish parts of Boston, yep. uh, that it was them against the world, this neighborhood solidarity, this Gemeinschaft, to use a German term, this real sense of community bondedness and a code. You don't talk to the cops. You might fight other Southie people quite frequently in Southie, but when it's against any, when any outsider comes along, you always get together with your Southie brothers and sisters. It also helps, and let's talk briefly about the busing crisis that occurred in the 60s and that 70s. Comes all these it comes up in every single one, yeah. because even the ones of people who were not children, and Southie at the time, though several of them were. What happened was this. In order to practically, like Isaac said, the schools were segregated by neighborhood. They were neighborhood schools, which meant they were, practically speaking, they were segregated by race. The schools were unequally funded for at least a decade. Lawyers and the federal government were trying to make the Boston School Committee which was a complete uh, shit show of corruption and boondoggling and ethnic politicking backslapping. Do something about this situation. That even if they weren't going to practically desegregate the schools, even if they wanted to keep the neighborhood schools, they at least needed to give more money to the schools that are dilapidated. Because, okay, like, like Isaac said, the NAACP people might notice that Roxbury High is actually less dilapidated uh, than Southie High because right. of relative lack of political corruption, but it was still pretty bad. But they stonewalled and stonewalled and stonewalled until finally a judge, Arthur Garrity, Irish judge, which became part of this whole melodrama, uh, Irish-American judge, uh, ruled that 
in order to desegregate the schools, students had to be bused. They had to be bused away from their neighborhoods, put on a school bus, and driven to neighbor, driven to schools in other neighborhoods. The schools chosen for the beginning of this, as they called it, experiment, were South, South Boston High or Roxbury High. South Boston immediately more or less exploded. It had been primed for this for that last decade by politicians who swore up and down that they would never essentially desegregate South Boston High. It got to the point where the initial buses that were brought in were stoned by crowds of children and adults. There were mass boycotts of the schools. There was tons of violence. You actually saw whole, basically whole graduating classes of South Boston High drop out, yeah. uh, which people argue, I think, pretty persuasively that it really did not help the economic <laughs> futures of South Boston. And the legend that came up around it was that, yes, was there racism? Yes. But the defensive myth is really what they objected to was social experimentation, the fact that they chose the poorest neighborhoods for this experiment, that the rich in their suburbs did not have to deal with the pressures of desegregation. They didn't have to bust their kids around. Some of them also pointed out that many Black parents weren't especially happy with what was going on. Admittedly, most of the crowds were screaming the N-word, um, throwing rocks, uh, getting in fights. Eventually, there was also an element where Boston cops were deployed, the uh, tactical force or whatever it was called, the riot cops were sent out. And they essentially, even, even the accounts of more balanced writers like Michael Patrick McDonald, basically occupied South Boston. Mm. And from all accounts, pretty severely brutalized the inhabitants. I suppose that something that might come, you would figure the police would be on the side of the white people over the black people. But I think there was this sense that it was the Southie trash acting up. Yeah, like they, you, you get kind of get the sense that like they broke a cardinal rule with their vicious racism this time, which is don't embarrass the city. Yes, and don't make it look like a not good place to invest. Yes, that's just exactly it. Because South Boston became <laughs> this national symbol for urban white racism. Yeah, right. It's racism stopped being the thing that just happened in the South, kicking uh, Cicero, Illinois off that. Place. Yes, yeah, exactly. So people reacted by saying we're not racists, uh, except, you know, all the people who are, um, or, you know, various other defensive. At, at some points, they actually did have marches uh, to Wellesley, Massachusetts, a very leafy, rich town where Arthur Gary lived. The idea that he was this traitorous, it, it all got tied up with Irish historical identity politics, because this was also roughly the same time that the troubles were kicking off, off in Northern Ireland. You would see graffiti saying Brits out of Ireland, Blacks out of Southie. It was, and, and so yeah, Arthur and, Garrity- And to be clear, like any, any Provo or Sinn Féin people on, on visiting South Boston was immediately weirded out by yeah. the, uh, the they found, schizophrenic politics, to put it mildly. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bernadette yeah. uh, talked about that. I do, it, it, Provos did manage to find their way to working with some of these people because, you know- Money's money, guns are guns. Yeah, but it was very strange. Uh, Garrity kind of played the role of the the turncoat Irish that you always need to have in these things, and we're not going to solve 
the busing thing here on this podcast, but I'll just lay my cards on the table. Obviously, it's a it's a ludicrous state of affairs that funding for primary and secondary education relies on tax bases that are tied to municipalities so that if you live in a poor town you don't have good schools that's even by the most by most forms of even basic democratic logic not even socialist logic that doesn't make any sense if you believe in meritocracy as a social goal as opposed to socialism i might disagree with that but the obvious thing you would do in that instance would be equalize school funding yeah. federally so yes it was ridiculous that they forced these urban schools in a decaying tax base to fight with each other and bear the social costs of desegregation that said there's no excuse for stoning school children you would figure they would have it in their mind that it wasn't the kids weren't doing this the black kids coming in and also like that that they had the option of of at least going towards equalizing funding yeah. they didn't do that they repeatedly elected people who swore they wouldn't do that they claimed I mean, I, on, on on some level obviously like they who else would vote for yeah and on some level they were like a lot of these people especially the uh the big movers in the school uh school council they wanted to whip up the the racist yes perspective because they knew they could mobilize that to their own ends. yes Yes. And, uh, and there's a deep, long, ingrained history of that. Yes. Going back to the fact that, like, Boston had more desegregated schools in the 19th right. century at times than they did oh, yeah. in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, and before a lot of the the more modern ethnopolitics yes. of Boston, Irish American white nationals that took hold. Yes. Uh, it was a, there's a long and peculiar history. It's not entirely anyone's fault but there is just a lot of flack in the air things like people <laughs> saying that oh we're opposed to social experimentation and the government telling us what to do and how to live our lives which is interesting given the role of uh, housing policy in creating uh this south boston yes well, utopia. Like, southie is a social experiment southie is entirely a social experiment they all knew it or at least would have known it if they weren't so strongly invested in not knowing it. But also the liberals and even the left of Boston at that time did not cover themselves in glory, casting any opposition to the scheme, no matter how well thought out, as just pure racism. The left, such as it was, it was in this period of decline, the long decline, by the time the riots broke out in the mid-70s. So you had some groups trying to defend the kids, you had some groups trying to just say, why not give more money to the Roxbury schools? And then you had groups like Chairman Bob Avakian's Revolutionary yeah. Communist Party supporting the rioters against the kids on the idea that this was a genuine working class rebellion. Uh, it's a lot of bullshit on many, many sides, liberal left and reactionary. It's, it was a sad situation. Everybody involved could have used to have been a bit more sensible and turn their anger towards something that made sense. Anyway, uh, sermon over. But this provided part of the, of the background, right? You got to be tribal, that's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and basically racist, but you had this soup song of an excuse. 
right, that these overweening government liberals had foisted this situation on you. It's not that you hate the Blacks, though you do recount how many fights you get in with Black people if you're- Why do you get in all those fights? Why do you, you don't get in all those fights? I mean, it's an interesting concept, but, you know, it's, you, you get to have a little tragedy, and that's something that I think a lot of people miss, right? People just have, like, empty- problems in their lives that suck, but they don't get to have this tragic narrative element to them. Anyway. All right. So let's talk about the books. Let's talk about the memoirs. There's four of them that I want to talk about in rough order of when they were released. There's Rat Bastards. Yeah. So I feel like one background on all of these books, since they're all Southie, and we've alluded to this when we said Southie is a social experiment that the residents don't want to acknowledge, is in a city like Boston or in, in wherever, absent, you know, extreme organized violence or serious money organized bureaucratic policy, you're not going to have an island of entirely white faces. Yeah. And Southie was interesting for the fact that basically due to connections by Irish-American politicians in the Boston area whose constituents were poor and living in tenements, not entirely in Southie, like quite mm -hmm. a few of them spread out in various other places, including Dorchester. During the New Deal, they lobbied and did get funding to build two very large mm -hmm. uh, kind of model city, model urban housing developments called the that came to be called the old harbor and the old colony mm -hmm. and these were for like tons of families yes they come up in every single one of these memoirs mm -hmm. michael patrick mcdonald and his i don't remember the exact number and it changed because several of them died his many siblings lived in old colony with their mother and the phrase you hear from people who grew up in old colony was it was the best place to be a kid in the yeah, no, and and I think there's a, a genuine amount of, of truth that and that basically they built a social policy experiment and uh, also made it extremely racist. Yes. The reason that there was they these residents would have less contact with not just African Americans, even like Italian Americans mm. and Jews. Jews, right? That was one of the, there was, was because of the housing policy. Right. It was decided. Due to the lobbying by, you know, their own ward healer machine type Congress in the New Deal. Um, there was substantial violence between Jews and Irish, mostly mm -hmm. Irish kids being the shit out of Jews and breaking their business windows and stuff in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And part of the decline of that probably was Jews moving to the suburbs, Irish, some of the rowdier elements winding up in this literal cul-de-sac. Yeah, where the, the rent was cheap. And uh, the thing is, is, like, the geography matters a little bit, too, because Southie, and th this confused me when I first moved to Boston, Southie is not in the south of no. the greater Boston area. No, it's not. It's, like, pretty much smack dab in the middle. It, it was at one point before the city of Boston annexed Roxbury to yeah. make a plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's essentially like a peninsula surrounded on three sides by water mm -hmm. with... It's southern end of it connecting to the kind of these western annexed parts of Boston. Did I describe that right? I think it's the western ends of it because the southern end of it, you could take the bridge, I think, to like Quincy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah which are like the first, 
Quincy and Weymouth being some of the first like suburbs where you started getting Irish moving out of the city. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so they were these little cul-de-sacs. All the men and had well to the you know even even in the forties when supposedly <laughs> this golden age of forties and fifties is golden age of two parent families. There weren't there were plenty of non two parent families. Right, the father either being dead in jail or just having left but the men all had jobs that were somewhere or another provided either by crime or by the state or both yeah because if it wasn't directly by the state AT&T and Gillette were both major employers those were major especially AT&T major recipients of kind of government contracts they were the official providers of phone service yeah. uh, by the state. The The entire thing, like Isaac says, was more or less a social experiment. Yeah, although like one that's, you know, like poured through the kind of ethnic and, and mm-hmm. racist mold of existing American power structures. Yes. So it, it's it's almost as if like you took the the redistribution of resources that you would get in a social democratic change mm-hmm. and you just poured it through yes. the existing 19th century all the way through the 1930s machine politics of America, where it's, yeah. it's very much about like what language did you speak before and who do you know? Right. And inevitably, if you're a pasty white Irish guy, right. that is going to be a pasty white Irish machine politician or a local priest who wielded right. a lot of power in this. But and you, the- you were saying about the jobs, like Bolger's father, James and, and Billy Bolger's father, like didn't really hold on a job. He was a mm. you know, quote unquote precariat. He just yeah. like ultimately had like guard jobs and stuff like that. But what right. he did do is he he drank and talked a lot with yeah. people and he knew a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that's how he was able to stay right. in these, frankly, like these were considered choice units. Yes. But that you had to have a low Some enough connection, a low enough income to stay in one of these choice units. And there's a big incentive there to have most of the income then be off the books. Yes, because uh, it's not like Whitey invite, invented crime in South Boston or Boston in general. There was a whole culture of uh, illegal gambling and you know loan sharking. It's not like these people had a lot of access to like credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to figure the invention of credit card cards and state lotteries probably really did a number on organized crime in the late 20th century. I think there was also like just a lot of like pilfering from various yes. like city cures to state bureaucracies and things like that. Yeah. And it was just acknowledged that people would just steal stuff off of trucks, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, Southie as a as a social experiment. How much of that do any of our memoirists talk about? Very little. No, it's just it's just like uh, it's just taken as like the nature around them. Yeah, and that's, even though it was like a very like communal neighborhood, not entirely in a negative sense. Like uh, yeah, Dick Lair in his book like talks about how they had the, like the highest portion of like Boy Scout troops, yeah, and shit like that, yeah. and huge huge feeder to the military. Yeah, um, and, most of these several of these guys either had relatives or served themselves, including Whitey. Yeah, including yeah. Whitey. Was like uh, there. There's that The Departed. That's another movie that entered into this. Though I think Scorsese does complicate things a little mm-hmm. bit more. But he has right at the beginning. Jack Nicholson. It shows this montage of uh, of news from the busing riots 
because it was uh, heavily played on the evening news all over the country. And it has Jack Nicholson's character, who's based on Whitey, Bulger giving this whole speech about how, you know, the Blacks, they would have to, they would have to do it the way we did it, right? We didn't ask for anything. We fought for it. And that was a myth that because they did politics, basically, and a certain amount of crime and stuck together and whatever whatever other concatenation of both historical and mythical factors that the Irish Americans either did do or thought they did to get into the place where they got, where they got these housing projects for themselves and this little enclave for themselves, they thought, well, the Black people aren't doing that. Uh, Arthur Garrity, the turncoat Irishman, is just trying to hand them our schools as though as though that was what the black people of, of Roxbury wanted so badly was to go to your bullshit high school. But yeah, so that was that became a kind of common sense, even among kind of a less openly racist. So what do you think, Isaac? Should we uh, do this in kind of chronological order by who's oldest to youngest? Or should we do it in the, I was going to do it in ascending order of how much I liked them. I was going to start with the one yeah. I liked least. Like, let's go through the most bullshit I love my white brothers and we had a great time and I, I learned so much on the way. Yeah. Like, let's do that. First. So, so for what it's worth, uh, just minor pedantic corrective, most of them weren't like, I love my white brothers. In fact, there's stories of the American Nazi party and the Klan trying to recruit in South Boston during the busing crisis and basically being driven out because, and you know, they had various, things, but, you know, speaking as a partially Irish-American resident of Massachusetts, Same. Uh, you know, long-term, you know, from multi, many generations in the area, I could say, I, I feel pretty confident in saying that they, okay, maybe they didn't like that the Klan used to be anti-Catholic or whatever, but I think they drove them out because they were weird, yeah. or as, to try to say it in the Boston accent, they were weird. They're fucking, they're fucking weird, kid. Yeah, it was really... I like what you're saying, but you're so fucking weird. Yeah, it was really more tribal. Like, if you were from outside of the neighborhood and you didn't talk like them and you didn't, like... They didn't want, like, ideological pedantry mm. um, to go along. Anyway, so... I, I feel like there's a, there's a deeply ironic side of this, which is of the places that South Boston is, is most, like, or Southie as such, it's much more like the artificial you know, uh, unionist-supported enclaves yes. of Belfast. Protestant nor loyalist Northern Ireland yeah. than it is like their, you know, alleged ethnic right. counterparts. Well, we'll get a little bit into that. Nationalist. But yeah, the most bullshit of these books, to my mind, is by Red Shea. It's called Rat Bastards. It, I think, I want to say 2006 or 2006. I would say on compliment, like, best name of these books. Oh yeah, for sure, yes. Kudos to him. That's a that's a punchy name. It's a punchy name, and it goes to his theme, which is that he, Red Shea, is the legitist gangster of South Boston of his era, because he and he alone did not rat on anybody. So by, by way of a little bit of background, like, who is Red Shea? Red Shea uh, was a young man born, I believe, in the early 60s, I want to say. So he was... He was youngish in the 80s. I think he went to South Boston High. Most of them did. I should have written all this down. Sorry, everybody. But Red Shea was, he was best known as one of the major drug dealers in South Boston. 
in Whitey's time. And here we get to the complication or one of the complications of the myth of Whitey, which is he was reputed to have kept drugs out of South Boston. This was not the case. And actually none of the memoirists claim it was because I think they would, it wouldn't pass fact checking. What, what Whitey kept out of Boston was heroin and angel dust. Yeah. And it was, among other things, a very useful control rod for Boston crime to have these rules to say, if anybody deals anything I don't want them to deal, I will drive them out or kill them. Of course, Whitey would also drive you out or kill you if you dealt drugs and did not pay him money. Yes. Red Shea primarily dealt in cocaine, though also pretty substantially in marijuana. He started out. I like to think of Red Shea as a lightweight boxer and a heavyweight bragger, right? Because he was, he literally starts his memoir by, he gets out of jail, some point I think in the 90s or aughts, and his his buddies are picking him up, and he's like, I want the one thing every man wants. And so they go visit some sex workers, and he's literally talking about how the sex workers, like, praise the size of his dick, and his sexual prowess. He's passing this on completely unironically um, to, to show what a big shot he is. He brags, He talks a lot about his boxing career, boxing very big in Southie. Whitey Bulger kept his eye on the local boxing scene, often recruiting star boxers to his uh, organization. And I don't know, he probably was pretty good at it. But in any event, he ran a lot of the drug dealing. In Southie, he started out as a retail dealer. He later on developed contacts, both uh, Anglos, but also Cubans and Venezuelans in South Florida. Yeah, say he, was like, he started out as a retailer, retail dealer. Sorry to make you backtrack. Mm -hmm. Like, you mean he's like on, just on the corner? Yeah, or, essentially. Yeah, yeah, in bars. Corner, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... In yeah, bars. Yeah. Bars are a big part of this because that, that allows, you know, someone like Whitey or earlier like Winter Hill mm -hmm. okay, uh, to, to control the flow and what's yes. sold and everything else. Yes, and the major theme in Shea's work, other than how great he read Shea is, for instance, he talks a lot about how, what a great boxer he was, but he does ultimately go into organized crime as his main thing because he can't break through. So I guess he wasn't... Great. Well, boxing is fucking hard. Boxing is yeah. That that and the fact that like frankly, as a as a Boston organized crime figure, you will probably like be make less mutilated. Oh yeah, less mutilated and make a lot more money. Yeah. So okay, the smart call, Ranche. But his main thing is that he kept to the code of the street. He kept to the code of you never talk about anything. You never you never talk to the police. You basically don't talk about anything that happens to you other than to get other than if you get revenge for it yourself mm. right these feuds would go on uh between little corner gangs families and so on causing people to wax poetical and vaguely historical about how it's like the clans in ireland at times mm. in a way that really makes one roll their eyes you know uh, michael patrick mcdonald for instance one anything of, they can do to be like our situation is not exactly the same as like, any black Hispanic, yeah. or any other color right. set of gangs in special. impoverished neighborhoods we're, we're we, we have a long story here yes. it's special it's tragic yeah. it, it, it has a connection it's both deeply american but has a connection to the old world so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, you know, Michael Patrick McDonald, one of the, he's, he became an anti-violence activist. He lost multiple family members, 
to the violence in the in South Boston, Boston more generally. He actually reached out to Black families experiencing the same thing, Hispanic families experiencing the same thing. And, you know, he was involved in gun buybacks and also just getting people to come out and say the names of their relatives who had been killed. Yes. Not even say who killed them, not even, you know, going up, demanding justice from the police, but just saying, this was my family member. He was shot outside of a bar. 50 people saw it. Nobody talked. Yeah. Or this was my relative. This was my cousin. He died of a cocaine overdose. Nobody, everyone knew who was selling it. Nobody did anything. This is my sister went to a sane asylum after, you know, being abused. Nobody, and, and died there. Nobody said. That's a, that's like, that's a practical outcome of the code of silence that Red Shea brags about upholding. Yeah, and, and just to say like the code of silence primarily among witnesses mm -hmm. rather than gangsters who, yes. who who have information to sell and yes. in the form of like a reduced sentence or whatever mm -hmm. like for witnesses it's a it's a very real thing like these were actually scary places it was it's no joke boston has a lot of unsolved homicides mm. including from this era and obviously you know continuing through the 90s and so on uh, i work with some people who were involved in like project for unsolved homicides and what i heard and i obviously won't name names or whatever over and over was yeah like the detectives and the the witnesses involved like they know who did it mm -hmm. you know they, they they know how they would prove it in court but like people have uh have basically through both suspicion on what interaction with the state would actually gain them yes. in terms of punishment yes. versus, you know, sundering the relationships in the neighborhood. And also then there's the added thing of when you have neighborhoods that lose trust in police. And this is true with every single case of like police brutality in the neighborhood. People stop reporting stuff yes. and they start taking care of things on their own. Yes. That's what happens a lot. Yes. You know, they I don't want to open this this um, Pandora's box right. of all of the tit for tat things that may have happened yes. with an unsolved homicide. Yes. And that's why Michael Patrick McDonald's approach actually it kind of resembles like a truth and reconciliation yeah. thing. Right. It's not he's saying he's not saying, yeah, let's get the cops to fix all this for us. Yeah, let's He's get saying, let, let's get some like 60-year-old like some some like lengthy sentences. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not trying to say that the people of South Boston are like uniquely bad or something for participating in the code of silence. What they are is they're people. And people respond to the conditions around them and the circumstances that aren't entirely of their own making. So but what I am saying is that Red Shea is an asshole. Yeah, let's go uh, back to Big Dick Red Shea. Yeah, Big Dick Red Shea is an asshole oh, because the people, yeah, right, citation needed. But um, Red Shea is an asshole, and many of these people are assholes because the ultimate beneficiaries of all this are the highest up criminals. And Shea obviously was not the highest up. He was a second stringer. But he was part of what amounts to a criminal aristocracy mm. uh, that ran South Boston like a fiefdom, and the rest were essentially and, and treated everyone else like peasants. Yeah, right. And the peasants felt like they could, with this additional soup song of they felt, especially in the wake of the busing riots and the police reaction to their admittedly quite violent protests that they were under occupation they were under siege it was them against the world so it's a lot like if you were you you saw this in colonial situations all over the world including ireland in some cases where you had a local elite that ran things under 
the imperial elite from above. Except for the fact that really, uh, well, we'll talk about. It ran like a little, uh, it, it was run like a little bit like a kind of a feudal like warlord. Yes. Like in the sense of people, shopkeepers, whatever, would have to pay. Yes, for the privilege. You know, ties, dudes. Yeah, and ultimately Whitey's ability to, to hold power. And I think this is what really fucked with the heads of a lot of these memoirists. Because their belief was that, and, and Shay says this, they all say it is that Whitey was the ultimate enforcer of the code. If you had a problem, you went to Whitey, mm-hmm. right? You didn't go to the cops. Uh, you didn't go to social welfare agencies a lot of the time, like except for the established like housing agency stuff. You didn't go to like a social worker or whatever. Because that you... would complicate him using the back door. Yes, but primarily he was meant to be the solver of feuds, though he also did, would he was also famous for saying if... So if a woman, uh, uh, an older woman with kids said, oh, this person's bothering me. This 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 guy's, I don't know, robbing kids in the courtyard or whatever of my apartment building. And he would say, well, do you have sons? And if the white woman said, yeah, I have sons, he would say, well, have your sons take care of it. Because he was ultimately invested in maintaining this system of violence. Yeah, he's trying to like reproduce the next generation. Yeah, of his own fucking goons. Yeah. And what fucked with them is that ultimately Whitey was able to keep power over the neighborhood because of the opposite of that. Because he was in with the federal government. He was in with the FBI and they let him do all of this and protected him from other police and he fed him. He fed them his rivals. Yeah. And ultimately, South Boss is not what it is today. And we'll maybe we could talk about that towards the end. Whitey Bulger went further towards destroying that neighborhood than probably any individual. Again, it's really more larger forces that that dictated the fate of you know most American cities. Yeah, I don't but, want to say like Whitey gets scapegoated yeah. in this way, but they they tend to like the accounts tend to including these like tend to align the way in which Whitey was just like the personification yes. of the eventual right you know breaking of this like kind of cloistered but he was supposed area. to be the personification of the neighborhood and he became it in terms of he became the personification of its destruction while pretending to be its upholder yeah he's the ultimate exception and Shay can't come out and say that. He just says, well, the man who taught me not to be a rat proved to be a rat. And dot, 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 that proves I'm the biggest dick gangster <laughs> of all. Because I took the rap. This is, he got wrapped up. So written in big letters. Big, big, uh, big crayon letters. And he took he took a fall in 1990, which is when sort of the Balter Empire started crumbling. Because the DEA, not connected to the FBI, did their started doing their own work in Southie. They rolled up much of Whitey's drug dealing network, which was really not hard to do if you weren't the FBI and utterly compromised or even or the Boston Police Department because it was all kind of out in the open. So they rolled up all these guys. A number of them talked for reduced sentences. They couldn't get anything on Bulger for a number of years. Shea refused to talk. And this is actually a little theme we'll see. In a couple of these books, there was this weird, like, almost Greek chorus, once you get to prison, of Italian gangsters who were like, told you so. We, we, knew, we knew all along. 
Because ultimately, uh, what 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 all this began with is that told them all along that, that they knew that Whitey was somehow right. connected. Yeah, which yeah. he never they never actually went up to Red Shea and said, "Told you so." But the 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 Italians in jail have this kind of smug, like, obviously, come on, guy, put it together. Uh, because originally Whitey was used as something. Just imagine these Italian gangsters in jail being like, you know. We've done a lot of growth here. <laughs> and what you really should have reassessed is whiteness in the context of Because <laughs> if you had gotten past whiteness, you could see that, you know, Whitey was kind of fucking you the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. But they, you know, because initially... going to hand you this book. It's, it's, uh, it's by Bell Hooks. <laughs> by David Rodiger. You know, we only became white, like... Fifty years ago, yeah, come on, guy. Not like Nadia, but uh, yeah, yeah. Originally, Whitey had his opportunity, made this alliance with the FBI in the wake of things like the Velocki hearings, mm -hmm. which is when the FBI started having to take the Italian mafia seriously. It was always a little bit weaker in Boston than in other similar industrialized cities. It was the local New England mafia was run out of Providence by the Patriarca family. There was always, they, they could never quite penetrate like the Irish ethnic politics scene here to like establish their dominance. There was the Angelo crew that ran things in like the North End or wherever, but they, they were pretty easy game for a combination of well-connected Irish gangsters in the FBI. Eventually, Red Shea gets out, um, and he talks about how uh, now he's legit in terms of being, I, I think he works construction and is occasionally a rent-a-mouth to talk about crime stuff yeah. as a talking head. But he, he didn't learn anything. He never had to learn anything as far as he was concerned, other than the fact that Whitey was a fed and a rat and that he was the only real guy the end no moral there's almost something like charming or at least just like very amusing and just the fact that like red shay just stupidly goes through unaware of anything it's just like i had a great time yeah i made i went to miami well he also made connections with all these like international coke dealers it's actually kind of miserable like he he talked about like how everyone was a fuck up except for him right okay, so he he doesn't actually have a good no he doesn't he not really no uh, he has Except a, the one time when the sex workers. With the sex workers. He has a good time boxing because he's good at it. He has like, I don't know. That's more, that's a thing with some, you know, it's like that joke from Archer when he has to deal with the Irish gangsters. It's like, why couldn't I de be dealing with the Brazilian mob? They'd be about a million times sexier. You know, none of them seem to have that good of a time. They all seem kind of grim. And like, they're, you know, the Irish like in a, in in Boston like to posit themselves as like the opposite of the Yankees, you know, the, the Puritans, the Wasps, whatever. But at the end of the day, they kind of all come together on the idea that the world actually is kind of shitty <laughs> and that, uh, you know, everyone's doing everything the wrong way. They kind of fit in together that way and numerous other of the ethnic groups that wound up in New England as well. Anyway, slightly higher up the totem pole, both in terms of literary quality and in terms of con actual connection to Whitey Bulger is Kevin Weeks. Yeah. Before we get to Weeks, do you think it's about time for a break? Yeah, talk yeah, about I think so.
Weeks told us he helped Bulger commit three murders in this house. He lured the victims there, stood guard over them while they were interrogated, and after they were killed, he buried them in the basement. No regrets about the loss of life you're responsible for? No. Do you have any idea where he is today? Um, a definitive idea? No. I mean, I, I believe he's probably over in Europe somewhere. I believe he went over to uh, Europe, and I think he got trapped over there after 9-11. And couldn't come back. Correct. Charlie and Carol Gasco were an elderly couple who moved to Santa Monica, California sometime in early 1997 to begin a new phase of their life. For the next 14 years, they did almost nothing that was memorable, and they would be of absolutely no interest if it weren't for the fact that Charlie Gasco turned out to be James Whitey Bulger. So uh, before we get to Mr. Kevin Weeks, uh, you were telling me about the the joy de vivre. The joy de vivre. Joy de vivre. Uh, the joy de vivre was of the Boston Irish. It's so funny, you know. Maybe they just didn't read these books, but like, it's like that joke that they make about the Sopranos and about mob <laughs> movies in general. That for a lot of guys, the fantasy of the Sopranos, it's okay. There's a power fantasy and there's whatever else, but you can get that from superheroes. What it really is is it's a fantasy of being a man with friends yeah just hang, being able just to hang out with your hang friends. out with your friends because that's kind of what they you know whitey was different and that whitey did spend a lot of time at bars overseeing everything usually alone or with his completely psycho buddy Steve Fleming. yeah Fleming. yeah Fleming. yeah, yeah. Stephen cut that, cut that. the rifleman Fleming. the rifleman Flemmy, or you know having kevin weeks kind of you know screen people for him but his idea of fun was uh, taking one of his girlfriends to the Riviera because he had the money to do it. Yeah, he he was actually like, Whitey himself was fully yellified. Yeah, he was kind of bougie. Yeah. But, you know, the the as far as, you know, the chaise and the like, weeks. I don't like it. It's cold here. Speaking yeah. of, it still is cold it's here. Even cold. though the, the cold gone. Yeah. Anyways, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> but uh, their draw to Vive was basically being hanging out at like shitty Southie bars getting drunk, some of them doing coke, though Whitey really discouraged them, mm -hmm. discouraged his direct underlings from doing coke or drinking too much, because he wanted them to be in control. Boxing, going to boxing, going for runs, uh, getting in fights with other Southie idiots. Uh, Which, you know, in, until Southie was more gentrified, that used to just be like a clockwork thing. Yeah. If you'd be able to go to a Southie bar, like, a fight would happen. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and getting it on with Southie chicks, which, you know, I, I wasn't there. I can't speak to their charms or lack thereof, but uh, it's charms. so it's charms. But yeah, it, it's not like they weren't doing Scarface, right? No. And if anything, Shay uh, seemed to, he got a look at the Scarfaces and while he thought it was cool and obviously he had had sex with some of the hot Latina ladies and they all thought he was uh, king shit of fuck mountain, but he, you know, oh, yeah, very alleged. But he preferred uh, he preferred being back home. So yeah, no, it, it really does seem to be the fantasy of belonging, of belonging to a place of being a man among men. And I guess that's what Shay is selling because he was the the manliest of them all, uh, allegedly. 
Uh, I mean, that was the that was the big selling point of these books, right? Like, right. didn't you tell me that like Rat Bastard was like one you probably see the most often? Oh yeah, you see you see Red Shay's face in a gritty black and white photo staring out at you. Not a handsome man, not ugly, just average. You know, uh, he looked like a Southie kid. He looked like he maybe didn't have the best skincare routine. Not that not that I want to talk. Ears. I bet you Whitey had a good skincare. I wouldn't routine. be surprised if he was ahead of the game yeah. in that. You know, ears, ears kind of fucked up. Mask. <laughs> yeah, ears kind of fucked up from fighting and boxing. But yeah, him just staring out grimly, the blood red letters, rat bastard. Rat bastards just staring out at you. The one guy who didn't who 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 held the weight. Anyway, uh, if that's what Shay was selling, Kevin Weeks couldn't sell that because he eventually got the nickname Two Weeks for how long he lasted after he got arrested, after uh, Whitey fled the coop. It doesn't was, have the selling point of not ratting out because he ratted he, he out. Ratted out. He ratted out, folks. Yeah, Je- Kevin Weeks, uh, of course, I, I think his biggest uh, star treatment at all was Jesse Plemons paid, played right. in, uh, in Black Mass. Which, like... I'm trying to think of a more, like, Jesse Plemons, great actor. I'm trying to think, if you were going to insult somebody by casting them, casting them as Jesse Plemons, it's like, you're this particular type of evil. This white bread, not sexy. Like, I'm sure I'm sure Jesse Plemons cleans up real nice. Nope. There's some Jesse Plemons fans online. I'm sure there are. Not trying to diss you, Jesse Plemons. I'm not Plemons. saying I had the Jesse Plemons subreddit. Right. Moderator there. But but it's not he's not he's not Johnny Depp he's not Timothy Chalamet no, no. but like this particular kind of just like sleazy underhanded white bread evil that that he represents yeah Weeks didn't make himself out to be that way naturally in his memoir brutal uh, he made himself out to be a tragic figure as one does that he his dad was mean most it appears that most of these people had parents who at least beat them up if not like abuse them more emotionally I, I think yeah so Kevin Weeks' dad definitely beat the shit out of him he is also he also represents a part of the Southie mythos that is a frequent theme <laughs> or a frequent like undertow which is that these divided families, where some of them go on to mainstream success and others of them stay in the neighborhood and sometimes become very successful in neighborhood terms. Mm-hmm. So Kevin Weeks's two older brothers both went to Harvard and became successful professionals. Well, that uh, doesn't come up in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> no. And Kevin Weeks apparently uh, was a pretty smart kid, got good grades. He was also there, he was younger, so his high school experience was disrupted by the shadow of busing, and he did eventually, I think he graduated just before, or maybe just like in the midst of the busing crisis, which was pretty rare, actually, for an Irish-American Southie high school, class of 74. I, Um, I feel like one thing that gets kind of underplayed here is, one, obviously there's the you know, completely immersive racist attitudes of South Boston people. That just like comes out anytime you play any video of busing. It's just the stream of N-words. Yes. But also if you were even if you were racist, if you were like, I want to go to school because I want to go to like whatever, like you stood a good chance of getting uh disciplined by others in the neighborhood. Yes. And you like were- that's how the boycott was yes you would get disciplined by the neighborhood. The schools work like you put all these fucking kids together and tell them that they have to hate each other. Yeah, you're going to get fights. 
Yeah. Like he got in the, and apparently, and I'd really like to look, we're getting into a case where we want your help reader uh, listeners. So Kevin Weeks claimed he was employed as a kind of school security officer immediately after graduating, which sounds like a weird thing to do. You just get a 18 year old kid to be a, a, so, a recent graduate. Someone definitely got in that job. Yeah, like, yeah. So yeah. there was some kind there of some palm greasing yeah. going on. He might even have said as much. But he was a school in basically, which meant he was like a hockey enforcer, as far as he saw it, going around uh, beating up the black kids who did the most damage to the white kids. Like he was the one who comes closest to like a real ideologically white attitude, and it's not that close. But he claims the closest thing to like you know like a, a fascist enforcer. Yeah, which but is interesting because he was Jesse Plemons, great casting. Not that absolutely. I'm saying that Jesse Plemons is a fascist. No, not at all. I'm he sure he's a very him. nice. Yeah, yeah, he really does. But the point is, you don't want to be played. You don't want to leave a legacy where you're played by that guy. But the point is, is that unless he has a turn in his typecasting, which I hope you know for his sake. Yeah, I, I bet he could do a lot of diverse stuff. Anyway, back to the busing. Yeah, back to the busing. He was just basically going around body checking the supposed worst offenders, including, and guys, we've Googled, we've looked around. We don't, this could be an entire myth, but we got to talk about Siegfried. I've literally reached out to like ex-detectives and shit to try to find out about it. Siegfried Goldstein. Yes. Siegfried Siegfried fucking Goldstein. The biggest, blackest brute of them all according to kevin weeks biggest blackest most communist most communist brute. It's amazing it's the best so he said hero of this podcast he, yeah he's uh, siegfried get in touch with us if, well, if, if anyone here or in the greater boston area knows siegfried goldstein all-time working class hero get in touch with please us. get in touch seriously we like, will. We need to tell our. We need to protect his identity. Okay, so Siegfried Goldstein, uh, Kevin Weeks claims that while he was this sort of security officer at Southie High, there was a black kid, really more like a black young adult, because Weeks says he was held back at least a year, was considerably older and bigger than the other kids. A black kid from Roxbury, supposedly named Siegfried Goldstein. Unusual name unusual for someone of, for, for anyone in America of a um, black Bostonian in the 70s. And he said that he went around with quote unquote communist symbols on his jacket, ambushing white kids until, of course, he came across Kevin Weeks, uh-huh. who uh used his uh you know boxing chop sake to teach and, and might ganged up on him with some of the white kids too. So so yeah, he took on Siegfried Goldstein, Goldstein sweared revenge. Uh Goldstein's Revenge. Goldstein's Revenge. That would be a good name for this podcast. But um <laughs> so he also says that uh, a year later, like a year after. He graduated or something. Goldstein went down for murder. We're and I mean, I've gone through like newspaper archives. Yeah. And everything. Like, like, it could be that Weeks used a fake name and just found in his head the name Siegfried Goldstein. You know who sounds bad? The Jews. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. Put, he managed to merge his, uh, his two theorists. Uh, Jews and blacks. Yeah, and communists. And communists. Um, all into one guy, or Stephen Goldstein exists. Uh, or he made it up out of whole cloth. Yeah, in, in case you haven't picked up, listeners, you know, it's 
highly possible that Siegfried Goldstein is a figure made up out of whole cloth to give Kevin Weeks here some kind of uh, villain that right. he can fight against the busing rather than just being a racist prick who is picking on young Black people during the busing crisis and beating them up. She might have been. But on the other hand, uh, as I've told Peter one, many times, I want to believe that Cedric Goldstein exists. And uh, I want to get I want to get his side of the story because, uh, Sam, Sam. you know, uh, Kevin Weeks is uh, what we call it, a, a criminal. Yeah, he's a criminal. And a liar. And a liar. And uh, really more of a criminal by choice than most of these guys. Because like I said, he did come from a family that had a little more stability, even if it was also abusive. His brothers did manage to get out, which again, you see this in a few of the families. So so Michael, so like the McDonald's, Michael Patrick McDonald's family, some of his, the military was a way out for a fair few of them, though a lot of them went into the military, then came back. So one of Michael Patrick McDonald's uh, brothers was like a Navy SEAL. And he managed to stay out. I think he went to Harvard after being a SEAL. Um, he was an impressive dude in that respect. But his also his brother. Or his graduated to greater levels of evil. Right. You yeah. the judge. Right. Another, um, another brother of his got killed in an armored car robbery, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, so Weeks, what Weeks is selling beyond speculative battles against the specter of Black Judeo-Bolshevism uh, <laughs> is access. Because I think possibly seeing some of himself in him or otherwise seeing like a smart and tough but impressionable kid, Whitey Bulger plucks Kevin Weeks out of the sea of young toughs in South Boston and makes Weeks his body man. Yeah. Weeks would go around, spend, you know, days and weeks, eventually years in close proximity to Bulger and Fleming. He claims now that while he, you know, eventually saw the truth about Bulger and resented him for, you know, exploiting his youthful whatever, that he always disliked Steve Fleming. They all say that now. Because Steve Fleming was the relatively out of control psychopath of the pair. Say what you will about Bulger, he's the in control. Yeah, relatively in-control psychopath. Whereas Flemmy, I mean, so Weeks sells access. He sells that he learned from Bulger, and he sells that he was there for several murders. He doesn't say that he did them himself, though I'm pretty sure he would be considered legally an accessory at the very least, which is why... Didn't he at least, like, dispose of the bodies? He did, yes. And then, like, a couple of them, like, bring the person there? Yes, he brought people there. Yeah, so... He was... Murder. <laughs> yeah, so he's a murderer, yeah. but he, legally. legally speaking, and at least a few of these murders involved basically just Steve Fleming's personal life, like when he was uh, sleeping with a stepdaughter, and that got inconvenient, so he got rid of, I think he eventually got rid of both the stepdaughter and the mother. Uh, right, Steve fucking Fleming. Yeah. Like, like just a guy who just accumulates bodies, killing people in brutal ways, mm -hmm. and just, I mean, he is like the Hollywood villain of this. I don't understand why he isn't depicted more. Right. Given that he is that rare combination of loves to, absolutely loves to kill people, ratted, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like ratted all over the place and loves raping young girls. Yeah. Though, there's also some accusations of Whitey in that vein. Yes. Which we don't really know one way or the other. We'll, we'll do deep dive on that. We'll yeah. actually 
do lighting. Do lighting. Yeah. So Weeks claimed he never uh, liked Fleming and that most people didn't. Fleming, it's also worth noting, uh, was also like kind of inserted into Bulger's life by the FBI, mm -hmm. more or less. Like the FBI kind of put them together for reasons that aren't entirely clear. Howie Carr, who I've alluded to before, but he's a local Boston journalist. Howie Carr kind of a sh also sort of a uh, like talking, head. talking head political shock jock almost um he's he's been a trump surrogate at various points he's sort of the voice of like the react he, he has a column at the boston herald which is sort of the boston tabloid right-leaning paper the post to the globe's times right uh, but without the clever headlines usually it has like it's like tiny little like on Boston imitations of like yeah, many New York stuff. Yeah, it's it's yeah, whatever. But Carr did have pretty good access for you know. I I very strongly dislike Howie Carr. He's done actually bad things to friends of mine, which I won't go into immediately. But he his book uh, did include some pretty interesting parts, including that Fleming was arguably Bulger's kind of he needed an Italian in order to get like access mm. to like Italian criminal spaces to eventually destroy them at the behest of the FBI. In any event, Kevin Weeks, uh, among other things, Kevin Weeks was one of the people who tried to intimidate Howie Carr into silence, supposedly. There was like this very like immature, childish, like back and forth between like the Bulger crew and Carr, mm -hmm. where it's like, hey, How Howie Carr, why don't you come down to the bar? And say this stuff to me. All the stuff you're saying on your radio show. Um, I'm, I, I'm eye rolling right now. Yeah, it's like, well, I don't know. Like, I kind of wish you wouldn't. He's Howie Carr's a prick, and it would be funny <laughs> that, if you got. That actually would be funny. It kind of would have been funny, but I gotta say, I'm with Howie Carr on this one. Maybe don't. Maybe you don't owe the local terrible fucking murderous criminals your 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 time in that way, your physical presence, so that they can you know kill you. Anyway, why don't you come on down to my murderous fiefdom that yeah. I could call? Yeah, uh, why don't I just uh, why don't you just come out to this dumpster? Despite the Howie Carr, could you please walk into this black plastic bag? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, despite the fact that he uh, is the the closest of all the gangsters, Kevin Weeks is also the most boring. His his lessons are all pretty anodyne ones about how you know you should you you should try okay, to let, let, let's like play some like what we learned music what right. did kevin weeks you should try to be good rather than bad you should be a good dad which he tries uh, a lot of these people talk about their kids and how they want to be better for their kids and you believe them to varying degrees i'm sure kevin weeks probably did at the end of the day it's all about at the end of the day it's all about and whitey provided fake family and that's that's yeah. the worst thing of all really um, uh when you get right down he, to he, he conned them really yeah he fooled them with the money and the drugs and the it, yeah um anyway so he got picked up and once he was shown how for the ethnic angle at first he was like you know once the fbi or whoever it was i guess it probably would have actually been a suffolk county da office yeah. Uh, showing him how much Whitey cooperated with the FBI. Although, um, well, I, I mean, Weeks was prosecuted by the, the Fed. Yes. It? Okay. So that's sorry. I got. I got. I mean, there there was some joint stuff in there. So Weeks, it, it was uh, it was District of Massachusetts, uh, AUSA. The other the other thing that Weeks tries to dangle in front of the reader is that after Bulger fled the coop in '94, Weeks was the contact point. Mm -hmm. So Weeks was doing all this spy versus spy shit in order to talk to Whitey as Whitey was like 
trying to figure out whether he had to be gone for good, whether he could eventually come back, whether he was passing messages on to Billy, the politician. Yeah. Like, that's, and, that's something interesting, too. Like, it doesn't seem to really filter that far down into into Whitey's right. network of yeah. these goons who are otherwise supposed to be smart. But, like, Whitey does a lot of, like, offset counter intel. Yeah type stuff but i'm not saying it's like extremely sophisticated he does like very simple things but yeah. like uh, it, it's it more than useless yeah. and they don't have to fucking do it because they're all covered by the society they live in yeah like weeks doesn't have to give a shit because like i mean among other things like it's considered kind of a rite of passage at least among the older guys less weeks and shame more the ones we're going to talk about it's considered a rite of passage to do something of a bit like at norfolk for a while yeah and then you come back um but mci norfolk the, yeah. the prison yeah but the rest of them are you know uh they're they're covered by the police and the politicians and the code of silence mm -hmm. so weeks was also kind of in charge he kind of inherited the empire for a few years though it kind of seems that he didn't run it that well uh because he got pinched a few years later and when he got pinched this was also after whitey's protectors and the fbi went down and when he got pinned, he turned on, he was shown the extent of Whitey's cooperation. And like I was saying before, there was this fun little ethnic angle where at first I think Kevin Weeks was trying to convince himself that, oh, Whitey just sold them the Italians. But then he's like, I saw a lot of names from the neighborhood, a lot of Lithuanian and Polish and Irish names. And that's when, you know, that's when the two weeks went up. So, you know, he, so he, he gets to spin the fact that, like, he uh, he did break the code. Yeah. As, like, actually, I broke the code because he betrayed the neighborhood. So, yes, I broke the code in fealty to the code. To the code, yeah, yeah essentially. And also, I started seeing that, you know, crime maybe is somewhat bad and that uh, I should uh, have a job. He went to prison for a while uh, because he was, after all, involved with many murders. But... Eventually, he got to come back, and much like uh, Shay, uh, it, he's made his money off of writing, off about what but There's an unusual aspect of this that I was only thinking about when we were recording this episode with you, which is there tends to be quite a bit of, po especially post-1970s, when you have these like, gruesome serial killers potentially collaborating on books. You have like Susan Atkins' mm -hmm. book where she collaborated with like, you know, bottom feeder Larry Schiller, very well-placed intelligence connected bottom feeder Larry Schiller, but that's a whole other thing. And they tend to bar criminals from making money out of their crimes by bragging about them in books. But this entire niche genre of 1950, sorry, 1990s dad books mm. would seem to go in the face of that. But I haven't heard of any like yeah. victim lawsuits Yeah, uh, about you... like, hey, Kevin Weeks, you can't profit off of like killing my right. father or you know my sister my you have to wonder you have to wonder if it's like the code of silence yeah i mean or if they're protected by the fucking because they all rolled they all roll like i, I imagine they're right shay wasn't to this day right shay wasn't involved with I mean, shay wasn't a killer yeah i mean he's he's, he's he, he has said many times i've not killed anyone. uh but if i did I wouldn't rat on myself, yeah. But uh, anyway, let's talk about the two more interesting books and the two more interesting writers. I mean, I think it might be about time to to take a break. This might be a two part. Yeah. yeah.